0: Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space, I still think it's
1: interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding.
0: Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insides.
1: I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA.
2: The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018.
3: You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do
2: exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done.
0: This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore.
1: Hope you didn't forget your umbrella at work today. My Lord, those rainstorms, like a monsoon out there. We're going to talk about... All of the leaks coming out of the White House. And I'm actually not talking in a, I'm talking in the literal sense. There was leaks in the basement of the White House. We'll give you the full lowdown on that. Plus, Swalwell's out. He becomes the first, the first presidential candidate to drop out of the 2020 field. Eric Swalwell says he's going to be running for re-election in Congress. He faces a challenger from the AOC wing of the Democratic Party. All of that, plus President Trump talking about the economy at the White House today. And Secretary of State Mike Pump says that there are tough sanctions against Iran. I'll give you the latest on 2020. We have an all-star panel making his return to the sound on program. Jack Fitzpatrick is with me. He is Bloomberg government congressional reporter. Has a lot to say about the debt limit. And Sagar and Jetty, chief Washington correspondent for The Hill newspaper. He's also a host at The Hill TV making his debut on Bloomberg Radio. And Congressman Mac Thornberry, Republican from Texas, he's going to be joining us later on as well to give us the lowdown on foreign policy. Wow. Jam-packed Monday, if all of that wasn't enough. Man, that rainstorm. Rain, it was like coming down as if it was, I don't even know, it was like a monsoon. Hope everybody got their uh, their their raincoat and, and and their umbrella, didn't forget it on the way to work. I was caught in it ducked I saw everybody. There were leaks everywhere. I mean, it's it's really insane, that rain. Here with me for the hour, not just to talk about the weather, but to talk politics and policy, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg government congressional reporter, and Sagar Jetty, chief Washington correspondent and host for The Hill TV. Uh, Sagar, this is your first uh, time on the program. We appreciate you being here. Uh, did you catch what President Trump had to say at the White House today at this this EPA <laughs> I don't even know it was supposed to be about the environment and then right. he, it kind of kind of all came together about the economy and whatnot were you at the white house today? i
4: wasn't over at the white house Kevin. And first of all thanks for having of me of course but it, it was an interesting way for the president to try and brand himself as very pro-environment and the white house and the president they've been talking about this for a long time they're, they they look at their natural gas policies in particular as the reason why they're such pro-environment i think there was some speculation that there were those in the white house who were concerned that some recent polling shows that the trump administration is not acting as a leader on the on the environment and going into 2020 they want Want to counteract that. Narrative. Let's take a listen
1: to what President Trump said earlier today at the White House. Here he is. For years, politicians told Americans that a strong economy and a vibrant energy sector were
2: incompatible with a healthy environment. In other words, one thing doesn't go with the other, and that's wrong because we're proving the exact opposite.
1: I mean, he couldn't have picked... A better, a better day with the rain coming down <laughs> Jack Fitzpatrick to, to, to talk about this. Uh, uh, and he's essentially saying game on Democratic Party with your Green New Deal.
5: Right. It, this hits at a really interesting kind of divide on how you define environmental issues. Democrats talk so much about climate change and you see natural disasters, you see flooding. When it gets to be hurricane season, you're going to hear them hammer Trump on increased greenhouse gases. But when you hear Trump talk Talk about, and I, I remember at the beginning of when Scott Pruitt was in charge of the EPA, they talk about quote unquote clean air, clean water, things that are aside from how much carbon dioxide is in the air. Really, it's it's uh, trying to exclude climate from the question of uh, environment.
4: Yeah, I, I think you're making a great point, Jack. And that, that really does show the way that this, both sides look at the issues. And that's very much a Nixonian, the Clean Water Act right. in the 1970s. That's kind of the Republican frame in which they like to frame the issue. Instead, you, you do see – actually, I saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez blaming the uh, the representative, blaming the flooding on Republicans today. So it, it, it's possible that we may even move forward include this as part of the debate.
1: I think it's interesting every time there's bad weather – or like it's like you always see these tweets on both sides. of The aisle. I mean, okay, are we are we now tweeting by weather? I mean, it's like you got it's like the forecast is going to somehow dictate policy. There really doesn't seem to be much appetite up on Capitol Hill, Jack, for there to be any type of bipartisan reform to come from the issue on the environment no
5: yeah i don't see any movement in terms of, of bringing the parties together on that especially the way the green new deal took center stage in democratic uh language uh the focus on a a massive you know they talk about world war ii i love how you, you say
1: language because like no one really knows what's in it yet so.
5: right right but it's senator
1: klobuchar in miami when i was down in miami i mean like literally like i, I don't know what's in it
5: yeah Uh, Meanwhile, you know, you may have some moderate Democrats who would much rather discuss this differently, maybe focus on ties between the Trump administration and oil lobbyists, coal lobbyists, that kind of thing. But Democrats have uh, uh, kind of gotten tunnel vision so much on sort of a grand deal on climate change specifically that it kind of sets up Trump and other Republicans to go back to their war on coal language and really cast Democrats being, Against blue-collar jobs, it, it, it makes it easy for Republicans on the, that level. The
4: point here on the Green New Deal is, is you're right, Kevin. Nobody knows even particularly what's in it, but it's about it's about. I believe that a climate change is an existential threat to the United States. It's about framing things within that language, and if anything, it can leave them a bit politically vulnerable because it does leave Republicans uh, being able to say, "Well, natural gas policy, and all this other things, we're making the environment cleaner. We're we're almost stymying that existential threat to what's happening." Here And it does frame it in an interesting way going into 2020. You
1: know, it's interesting because in the spin room in Miami, I bumped into Jay, literally bumped because they're all like shoved up <laughs> against you in the spin room. Uh, Jay Inslee, tall guy, by the way, the governor of Washington state. And and he's really framed his, his candidacy on the issue of climate change and, and whatnot. And I asked him to both of your points. I said, because they've got a lumber. I mean, Washington state, ton of lumber, ton of lumber jobs. And I said, how did you go into these types of towns, and and, and I didn't say it, you know, with any bias, because I'm curious. And I said, how do you go into these towns and tell them that their jobs, what you're arguing is that these jobs are no longer going to be existent? These coal jobs, what you're saying are are no longer going to be a part of the the fabric of, of the American economy. And what he said is that you have to use public and private partnerships in order to somehow create an off-ramp for these types of sectors. But to both of your points, I mean, you, you, you look at someone or some of these folks and, and you go into to Joe Manchin country and it's tough because, you know, these refinery jobs, uh, whether they're in Pennsylvania where I grew up or they're in West Virginia, it's tough to go into those towns and, and suddenly say, hey, your, your job, the way you make a living, your livelihood – is no longer going to be included in the culture of America. It is—it's uh, a fascinating, fascinating debate. I was thinking about that as the rain came down. Did you guys see on Twitter though? In the basement, I, I stayed out of the White House today. Yeah. Did you see on Twitter in the White in the White House, the White House in the press room, the Brady press briefing room, literally flooding. Flooding. I saw the, the CNBC, Yaman yeah. Yavri. I saw his tweet. I was like, boy, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, can't make it up. Literal leaks at the White House. stage, Jack Fitzpatrick, Sagar, and Jetty. And coming up, we're going to hear from Congressman Mac Thornberry. We also talk foreign policy, as well as the 2020 election. You can download the sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin. Evan Cirilli, you're listening to Bloomberg
0: 99.1. You're listening to Sound On with Lee on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore.
1: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Joining me here in studio for the hour, an all-star panel, Jack Fitzpatrick. He is Bloomberg Government's congressional reporter. And Sagar and Jetty, he is Chief Washington Correspondent and host at The Hill TV. He had that awesome interview with President Trump the other week, along with Jordan Fabian. And previously you were at the Daily Caller with Tucker Carlson, skyrocketing his career within the last couple of months. And we're thrilled to have him on for the day. Coming up, we're going to hear from Congressman Mac Thornberry, a Republican from Texas. And we're going to ask him about foreign policy. And that's where I want to kind of lead here, which is with this Iran and sanctions, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo going out and, and talking publicly about how Iran officials now claim that they've exceeded the limit on uranium enrichment. This was in violation, of course, with the 2015 JCPOA, or the Iran nuclear disarmament deal. It's a brazen, brazen, brazen attempt to show that they are not in agreement uh, with the, the Iran nuclear disarmament deal, and also that they are now just openly pursuing their nuclear ambitions continuing to do so. The political divides are obvious. Democrats say that this is a result of the president withdrawing from the Iran nuclear disarmament deal. Republicans say that this is a temper tantrum of sorts on behalf of Tehran for These crippling economic sanctions and that these sanctions have caused Tehran to lash out. I want to play for you what Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had to say. Uh, Take a listen to what he had to say speaking earlier today at a Christians United for Israel summit.
0: We've implemented the strongest pressure campaign in history against the Iranian regime, and we are not done.
1: So... Sagar, I mean, mm. it's, ha, at what point do we run out of things to sanction?
4: That, a lot of people have been asking the very <laughs> same thing, which is haven't we basically sanctioned? I think it's around 80 percent of the Iranian economy. The real point here is that the what the Iranians are doing is they're ratcheting up their enrichment program because it's a way in order to start the clock ticking with – Discussions between Europe and the United States about potential types of relief, a new deal, they think that they can try and break out, especially if you saw it with that recent shootdown, that by escalating tensions, they'll fear the Western alliance and, and be able to get some sort of deal or some sort of terms relatively. I
1: mean, I don't think the Europe and the US are on the same pages in terms of what to do here.
4: That's right, Kevin. That's the real issue is that the Europeans never wanted to leave the deal. Germany in particular, our ambassador there has been having quite a bit of trouble trying to get German companies to pull. Out of already established yields, they're very upset with the Trump administration. However, it seems to be backfiring the Iranians because the moment they break out and they started enriching more, the moment that they shot down an American drone, mm. it really did change the calculus on the on the Europeans' part because they can't exactly go to bat for Iran. But the Iranians look at this and they say, "You aren't going to bat for us anyways. Our economy is completely in the tank, and we have to do something."
1: I'm going to quote my friend, my Bloomberg mentor, Tom. Rip up the script because Sagar's making a good point, Jack, and that is this: that. When you look at sort of the mainstream, how everything is covered in in terms of the the political battle lines, they say that Europe is not following the U.S. lead because of the rhetorical approach on behalf of the Trump administration. But really, what we're talking about here is business. What we're talking about here is finance and energy in particular, because Europe's energy involvement with Iran – is very different the, uh, of a relationship than the U.S. has with the with the energy
4: in, in Iran. No. Oh, a- absolutely, Kevin. And it's not explain just explain that for us. It's it's not just energy. It's all si- types of business deals. Remember, Boeing itself had a business deal, Airbus, and all these other companies, manufacturing contracts, chemicals. The Iranian economy has been isolated for so long that the European Re- Europeans are hungry for the massive market to enter. True, after the JCPOA. All these companies were flying over to Tehran. They're going through their business contracts. They had all these multi-billion dollar aspirations. Trump administration just pulls the rug out from under that making them very angry.
1: And essentially says, hey, North Korea is waiting in the wings. Jack, go ahead. The,
5: the only thing I'd add to that is, big picture, the Trump administration at some point has to determine when they are comfortable being seen as making a deal with Iran. It's mm. very easy politically to criticize the previous deal and say that they weren't tough enough of, on Iran. But you're right that it's about 80% of Iran's econ- mm-hmm. economy that was already sanctioned. At a certain point, adding only hurts the people rather than the regime.
1: Secretary Pompeo was talking about that earlier today speaking at the Christians United for Israel summit. Take a listen to what else he had to say.
0: We've cut off billions in funds that the Islamic Republic, Iran's leadership would have used for various nefarious purposes, not the least of which would have been their efforts to destroy the state of Israel.
1: Jack, I I was talking about this a little bit over the weekend on MSNBC, but I'm curious for what you're hearing from Democrats in Congress, because with the exception of Tulsi Gabbard, the lone exception, there doesn't really seem to be that much difference in terms of all of the Democrats who are campaigning for president, how they would deal with Iran. No one's saying that Iran should have a nuclear weapon. Really, the fight that we're the political fight that we're having is over keep Iran from having a nuclear weapon.
5: Right. And in Congress, I think it's a pretty similar dynamic to what you've seen from the presidential candidates on the Democratic side. One, there's just skepticism of Anything the Trump administration is going to do. Two, there is some reflexive uh, defensiveness about anything that the Obama administration accomplished. And three, there is, uh, as I said, concern on the on the Trump administration as to whether are you uh, trying, are you going for regime change and something that would destabilize the Middle East, or do you have a specific goal that you can uh, communicate to Congress and say, all right, this is where we would have a deal with Iran. This is how much we need to do adding sanctions before we feel we've uh, actually accomplished something
4: that's that's the real thing nobody actually knows what president trump wants out of this the administration's laid out they call it like i think it's a 10 or 12 points the things that the iranians need to do to be able to bring a table and we'll talk about a new deal whenever it comes to congress and whenever it comes to president trump he says i'll talk no preconditions whatsoever bit out of step with his own administration
5: yeah the, yeah, the inconsistency there. Uh, those ten or twelve bullet points mm. also are are a lot, and I don't know if you right. can necessarily get Europe and all the global allies that you rallied around the original Iran deal uh, to back up what the Trump administration. All right, is
1: coming up, for. we're going to talk more about this with Congressman Mac Thornberry, the Republican from Texas. Our K.O. tells me he's running a little bit late, so we'll we'll bring you when he calls in. We'll uh, we'll bring that to you as it happens. We're also going to talk about twenty twenty. We were touching on that. Panel stage, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg Government Congressional Reporter, Sagar and Jetty, Chief Washington correspondent and host for Hill TV. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. You can download the sound on podcasts on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business App. You can also find us on radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify, and of course of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. You're listening to Bloomberg ninety nine one.
2: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore.
1: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We're thrilled to be joined now by the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, Congressman Mac Thornberry. He is a Republican from Texas. Congressman, thanks so much for for coming on. We appreciate it. I want to take on what's going on with this situation in Iran. Earlier in the show, we were talking about Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh, who's talking that he believes those those sanctions on Tehran have been working. We're also getting news that Iran officials now claim they've exceeded the limit on uranium enrichment, violating that 2015 nuclear disarmament deal that the administration pulled out of.
3: I think the sanctions have been effective on Iran. Uh, And Iran, in some ways, is following the playbook of North Korea. That is to gin up a crisis, increase tensions... And hope that uh, the other countries, in this case Europe and the United States, will be so concerned about what they may do that they will come in with some sort of relief package, such as an easing of sanctions, without Iran having to make any real changes to their nuclear missile program. So I think we're seeing this ratchet up sanctions and see what it can get you sort of approach.
1: Congressman Mac Thornberry joins us. He's the top Republican on the House Armed Services Committee, a Republican from Texas. Congressman, you mentioned North Korea in terms of what we've seen from President Trump within the last couple of weeks, of course, making that historic uh, visit to North Korea. And you mentioned that they might be taking that Iran might be taking a page out of North Korea's playbook. How does this all fit together? Because folks in their car on their way home from work today, returning from the holiday weekend, are looking at the geopolitics in that region in particular. And there's a lot of uneasiness. How does this all come together?
3: I think it comes together in, in a couple of ways. One is North Korea and Iran are both outlier nations that are testing us and our allies to see what they can get away with, to see how they can improve their position. Secondly, I think in both cases, President Trump has really been over backwards to give negotiations a chance. Uh, he has this friendly back and forth with Kim Jong-un. He did not use, a, have a kinetic response when Iran shot down our unmanned drone. So he kind of bent over backwards to see if negotiations can, can go where. But I think the third commonality is, in both cases, that the bottom line of what gets their attention, what has their respect, is, is hard military power. I don't think it was a coincidence that this last escalation in Iran where they started bombing, I mean, uh, mining tankers occurred when we did not have a carrier in the Persian Gulf. We, we didn't have enough. And so there was a period of several weeks there where we didn't have a carrier. Both countries, uh, Iran and North Korea, respect and watch carefully our military power and and I think it makes it-
1: now this is uh, we're talking to someone who knows a thing or two about foreign policy. Uh, he served you served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for legislative affairs under Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, right? That, uh, is that true?
3: Uh, that's true. I was very young uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, and, and, and was just there towards the end of the Reagan administration. But what an education to work with Secretary George Schultz Sh- George and uh, to see how what is possible from an approach of peace through strength. You know, our times have changed. Our adversaries have changed. But the basic philosophy, whether you're dealing with Iran, North Korea, China, Russia – whoever of peace Sue strength still has a lot of application
1: you know it's, it's interesting because when you when you put on your constituent cap for a second you know we're talking about this and whatnot but i want to pivot to trade policy because you've you also grew up on a ranch and when I, i'm curious for what you hear from your constituents on how the president's trade negotiations are impacting some of your constituents especially in the agricultural uh, in the agricultural community
3: oh it definitely hurts uh you know president trump i think still has a tremendous amount of political support from farmers ranchers other folks uh, in my district but there's no question that whether it's other commodities seeing price pressed as a result of these trade disputes i think most of my folks are willing to to give him the benefit of the doubt and some time to hopefully reach some new trade agreements Uh, it's having an effect on the pocketbooks across middle america
1: and you've got the, uh, the big vote this week, I believe this week, on the defense reauthorization bill. What's going to give us a preview of that? What can we expect?
3: Well, uh, several hundred amendments have been filed. And so the question is, do, does the bill get better or worse from at least my perspective as far as how the final vote comes out on Friday? I, I think in, a, in synopsis. Uh, we cut defense budgets by about twenty percent over the last several years. Uh, in the last two years, uh, with and while President Trump's been in office, we made half of that amount. So the key question for me is: Do we continue to make progress? Or do we start to backslide? And whether you're North Korea, China, Iran, or whoever, you're watching these debates because it tells you something about the United States' willingness to stand up and defend ourselves. So it's important about for, to treat the troops right. It's important on what the amount of money can buy, how many planes and ships and so forth. But it's also important in the message it sends to the world about our commitment to defending ourselves and our allies.
1: Congressman Mac Thornberry is on the line. He's the top Republican on the House for House Armed Services Committee. It's a mouthful. House Armed Services Committee. He uh, represents Texas, U.S. District 13, Northern Texas, Northern Texas, spanning uh, the northern uh, uh, portion of the state. Before I let you go, and you've been so generous to Bloomberg today with your time, we are very, very much appreciated of that. But this this immigration debate, I mean, I want to stay away from the Partisan back and forth, and, and, and I want to really focus on solution here because when I interview Republicans and when I interview Democrats, there, there, there's it's it's unsettling, unsettling for lack of a better word, seeing how these these kids are being kept in uh, in these in these facilities. Uh, I'm curious: is there going to be any short-term, immediate solution to alleviate some of this some of this pain?
3: Uh, I wish I could uh, alleviate some of your anxiety and say yes. Uh, I think it is eminently possible. But when it comes to all of these immigration issues, 75, 80 percent of the things that need to be done are agreed to by people on both sides of the aisle. Correct. Unfortunately, it's the small percentage that is the tail wagging the dog right now. And uh, I'm afraid both sides see a political benefit to continuing the controversy. But as, as you point out, there are victims here, uh, victims we've been seeing uh, in these detention centers. You know, some of the victims are inside the country who uh, have have suffered loss as a result of people who should not have been in the country. There, there's a lot. And and, and, and there are victims uh, all in between with the traffickers and everything that, that's happening from Central America all through Mexico. I, I you know, I'll, I'll continue to hope and do what I can to push, getting that 75% solution, because I think that will help and give us momentum to get the other issues on the way to resolution.
1: All right. Congressman Mac Thornberry, Republican from Texas, he's joining us live in our New York. Congressman, I appreciate the time very, very much. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me, Kevin.
1: Coming up, we talk the 2020 election campaign. Swalwell's out. Swalwell has dropped out of the race. We're going to get all-star reaction from an all-star panel jack fitzpatrick sagar and jetty and i'm kevin cirilli chief washington correspondent for bloomberg tv and bloomberg radio and you're listening to bloomberg 99.1
0: you're listening to sound on with kevin cirilli on bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 fm hd2 baltimore
1: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We're talking all things politics and policy with Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg Government Congressional Reporter, and Sagar and Jetty, Chief Washington Correspondent and host for The Hill TV. He had that phenomenal, phenomenal news-making interview with President Trump the other week. Um, we're thrilled to have him on the show. Uh, the the second quarter fundraising numbers for the 2020 presidential race are are trickling in. Senator Elizabeth Warren shattering record. I mean, shattering expectations, rather. $18.1 million she raised in the second quarter. She beat Bernie. I mean, she beat Bernie Sanders just slightly. He was hovering, I believe, at like around the same mark uh, for the second quarter. But they're jockeying for the same vote. Now, it's still uh, behind, I, I believe, Pete Buttigieg kind of beat everybody out of the water. He got like 20-plus mil. And then Biden, I believe, reportedly is going to have somewhere around the 20 million mark. So, I mean, Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, she got 12 mil, but... Sagar, I mean in terms of the money race, where do you, what you, how are you sizing everybody up? So it's, it's, oh, let me turn on your mic. That would help. There I, you go. I do, I do host the show.
4: Go ahead. <laughs> it's important to look at the numbers and also look at the bases of both people because we like to think that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie share the same base, but it's not necessarily true. With Elizabeth Warren, they have much more of an upper-middle class, more educated liberal, where – with Sanders, it's a working class, uh, a working class Democratic liberal. So different. That's donor such an bases.
1: important, and, an important point, especially as the race continues, and especially when the polls start asking who folks number two choice is and whatnot. Go ahead. Sorry to yeah, interrupt.
4: No, no, no. But but the, that point is is to be understood, which is yes, the 19.1 million is there. However, I believe is was a, a Washington Post poll that just came out today. Elizabeth Warren's at 11 percent. Bernie Sanders is at 23%. So, yes, there are other polls that are showing her that are that are skyrocketing. But the haul from her is not surprising given that she's having her breakout moment. She's got such a wealthy base of people who love what she's doing. I
1: don't think she's had her breakout – I'm yeah. going to respectfully disagree. Yeah, please. I don't think she's had her breakout moment yet. I think she's playing this, like, slow and steady marathon. I think Kamala Harris had the breakout moment. But, Jack, I, I mean I think Elizabeth Warren's in this for the long haul, and she can't – this is what's fascinating – she atta- she criticizes the big banks, uh, and she can't really race from the big banks. She can't <laughs> right. be like you know earning in the big the big dollar donors.
5: Yeah, well, that's one thing that makes a, a huge fundraising hall impressive for her because it is a very grassroots uh, number that she brought in. Uh, I I agree with you that I don't think she had her moment that skyrocketed her up. She's been increasing in the polls, and the fundraising hall probably backs that up. But I think the uh, expectations were so high for her heading into the first debate that she probably didn't benefit as much as she could have just yeah. because she was already seen as being so bright.
4: I guess breakout moment wasn't the best choice of words. But the way I would look at it is because she's got the I've got the plan for that mm-hmm. great branding. Great at the same branding. time, from, I, from the people I hear, she's got a great ground team who is just all over. And I have to say, as somebody who covers this, and I'll talk to a lot of political reporters, a lot of them tell me – one of the best people on the stump is elizabeth warren and a lot of these in a lot of these events that she just brings the house down in in comparison to bernie sanders so i'm not surprised to see her bring in that haul uh, on the kamala harris point it is also important to know the 11 million is not where she needs to be to compete in the sector. But with the with the increase in going into that second debate, that number could pump up.
1: There is this ABC News Washington Post poll out over the weekend, and it shows that former Vice President Joe Biden is the only candidate with a clear edge, a clear edge over President Trump in a general election matchup. Now, they're neck and neck, and I don't, you know, if you're listening, they're neck and neck, and they're swing states, I hear you. But the ABC News Washington Post poll shows that Biden really is right now the only uh, uh, candidate who would beat Trump, and according to this poll, leading the president by 10 points, 10 points among voters. Warren, Harris, Sanders, uh, Buttigieg, they're in like a neck and neck uh, race as well, so Senator Kamala Harris was uh, on the campaign trail in South Carolina on Monday earlier today. Uh, take a listen uh, to what she said as uh, with the backdrop of this poll. Here she is. I fully intend to win this election. I do she's in it to win it. Jack.
5: Yeah, that, well, that's a relevant question for a lot of the people running because it's such a big group. Uh, you have to eventually start to ask yourself, who's running? Like a VP candidate who wants uh, a spot running a department uh, under potentially a Biden administration <laughs> or whatever it might be. Uh, she it, it maybe took a risk by kind of uh, throwing a punch uh, figuratively at Biden on his stance previously on busing. Uh, she got attention for that. She forced Biden to essentially campaign against her rather than keeping the focus on him and Trump. Uh, and, and, and it's that's personality,
1: it's personality mm-hmm. driven, that fight, right, Sagar? And, yeah. and what Warren's doing is saying let's have a policy fight. So that's 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 why I feel like as, as they start to drop off, and Eric Swalwell, if you're just joining us, announced earlier this afternoon that uh, he will seek reelection in his Northern California congressional district. He is not going to be continuing his run. Swalwell was the one who challenged Biden with the torch comment in Miami, remember Pass that? Passed the torch, Pass right. the torch, I was like, oh, someone went after Biden. <laughs> like two minutes later, you've got Harris with like right. the KO with Biden. You could've heard a pin drop down there. Anyway, stay yeah. on point, Kev. But Warren's playing this long game of trying to draw a contrast in policy, no?
4: Yeah, it's about branding and niche, so with with Elizabeth Warren it's "I've got a plan for that." with Bernie, it's a political revolution. Now Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are fighting for that more neoliberal establishment type voter, and the thing is so important with Kamala Harris and with Biden is that for those types of voters, one of the number one things in this primary is elect. To build. A lot of Biden support, maybe even Kamala Harris's support, are people who are like, you know, they're maybe not my first choice, but this is somebody that I – President Trump. It's one of the first times electability is a chief concern in a primary, not necessarily the case.
1: All right. We've got like a minute and a half left, uh, but uh, this this Jeffrey Epstein story oh, is yeah. just – it's disgusting. I mean it's, it's really, really – it's it's awful. I mean, if you haven't been following this, uh, he's a billionaire, and he was just indicted today, I believe, on a host of different charges relating to pedophilia. But it has this political connection to the labor department. Uh, Sagar, you were, mm-hmm. we were talking about this in the break. Just very quickly, I mean, I'm reading from Politico, the headline at Politico by Anita Kumar and Daniel Lipman, who's a great friend of the program, saying, quote, the next 72 hours are critical – for Acosta,
4: yeah, it, they are absolutely critical. So we've known since November 2018 that Secretary Acosta, while he's a federal prosecutor, cut a sweetheart deal with Jeffrey Epstein, basically let him off the hook, put him in a Palm Beach County jail for 13 months with work release program for serious sex trafficking and pedophilia charges. Now the Southern District of New York is coming after him for same types of actions at the same time period. And important to note that they actually pulled uh, they pulled some some child pornography basically out of his out of his house it was really troubling to see
1: justice needs to be served on every story like that I want to thank Sagar and Jetty for coming on Jack Fitzpatrick I'm Kevin Cirilli Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio we'll have more on all of these stories coming up all throughout the week you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1